Delaware's General Assembly is constitutionally obligated to do one thing, pass a balanced budget. The process is a year-long endeavor with feedback from many stakeholders. But at the end of the day, Delaware answers to its nearly one million residents, and the budget is reflective of services that support every aspect of their lives. Last week, Governor John Carney unveiled his 2020 budget, and today the General Assembly begins its work dissecting every part. From the Delaware House Democratic Caucus, this is Whip Count. The budget process starts when executive agencies determine what they need and put in their requests with Delaware's budget director. We talked to Dr. Kara Odom-Walker, Delaware Secretary of Health and Social Services, to tell us about her part and what it's like managing Delaware's largest agency. My name is Kara Odom-Walker. I'm the Cabinet Secretary for the Delaware Department of Health and Social Services. So I'm sure it's very similar to what you've heard from other state agencies. We start a process where even during the prior year, we're flagging things that may come up as important planning issues and kind of put a pin in it so that we can talk about it through the summer. Uh, but it takes us probably through August, September for us to get all the divisions together, give us their needs, uh, their list, and they all have to come and present to me in early fall, so September, October-ish. And then we go through a process where we're in constant dialogue with um, OMB and making sure that the CGO's office is involved. Uh, but they, they obviously want to know kind of where things are going, whether there's some major issue that needs to be addressed or fixed in our facilities and our buildings or other uh, programmatic priorities that have emerged. So we, we've been thinking about those things and then have a small amount of guidance around new things, new, new discretionary items. So I highlighted some of those today around our 1% discretionary um, budget, which is bigger than some, but it definitely goes pretty quickly when you're talking about 11 divisions. So they are social services, state service centers, child support services, developmental disability services, services for aging and adults with physical disabilities, healthcare quality, visually impaired, management services, Medicaid and medical assistance, public health, substance abuse and mental health, and, and then the Office of the Secretary, which is sort of an overarching um, consolidator of a lot of functions. So so they're, they're very different. And some of them are large divisions, some are small, some have 24-7 facilities, others don't. Um, and so we're always trying to balance those needs and make sure the larger divisions aren't the only ones with uh, new things that, that get pushed forward. Uh, but it, it's really important that we are able to achieve our mission uh, which is really to make sure we're serving all Delawareans who need our services and programs. Well, that's our, our biggest focus, is making sure that we're helping not only the littlest of little babies, but also those who are aging in place, and, and making sure that we're really able to provide people the right supports and programs uh, for students who are going through our educational system and need uh, support because they're visually impaired, or if we're talking about uh, what we do around prevention and disease uh, focus, whether it's chronic disease management or really making sure we're addressing needed vaccines. I think there's a full range of programs that are important to Delawareans. And we really know that we have this personal impact on people who are struggling and may come find us not on their best day, uh, that come and find us in our state service centers and are looking for some of our safety net programs or some of the work we do at a higher level to really make sure that things are consolidated and easy to navigate. And so logistically, how do you... Um, 
decide what goes into the budget? And how do you kind of work with the divisions to explain those decisions and, you know, say, okay, maybe in a couple years or, you know, just how does, how does that work? Well, I believe my personal style of leadership is really that I am there to facilitate these collaborative conversations between my division leadership. And as a servant leader, I feel like my role is to bring people together, have an open conversation, and um, and use the best information we have to guide those decisions collectively. But it's not really a top-down style. I would say that we have some guardrails because the governor's action plan did lay out some pretty important priorities for our department. So that gives us a framework to work with them. We know that we needed to focus on mental health and our response to the opioid crisis. That's an emerging need that's affecting many, many Delawareans. We needed to make sure we were looking at the incarcerated and people who are re-entering their communities after prison. We needed to make sure we were looking at healthy communities and healthy lifestyles and what we're doing around growing healthcare costs that are really pushing out other areas of focus. And so with that, I think it's really important that we share that vision, but then allow the divisions and their leadership and their staff who are often interacting with clients and individual families to come up with ideas that we may not have uh, have the funds for in the past, but may be able to be funded this year. And we're in November now, but when does this process start for you at the end of the fiscal year? Kind of how, how long does it start? Yeah, I would say by the time we're getting to a place where we have an approved budget for the upcoming fiscal year, we've already started conversations, very basic conversations. Uh, but truly putting pen to paper probably doesn't happen until August. But as you know, it's a year-long process. I mean, we just had our first public hearing where we get to hear from from members of the public, our stakeholders, our providers about whether they think we're on target or way off. Uh, Then the governor has to take all of that input into account and look at the needs across state agencies and come up with the recommended budget that he launches in, in January. And then we go through the next steps around Joint Finance Committee and presenting our budget. So it really is a a year-long process in many ways to get to a a fiscal year budget that everybody knows where we're going. We're trying to row in the same direction, but uh, bring everybody together around this shared vision that we have in front of us. Do you find that you have to prepare differently for, you know, the first public hearing versus when you're going in front of JFC and the lawmakers? Kind of what is that process like? Well, this um, public hearing is different because it's shorter. We only have an hour, whereas Joint Finance Committee is three days of all-day hearings with a lot of questions that come at us from legislators. Um, and so it is a little bit different. In some ways, I I appreciate the opportunity to showcase what our department has to um, present today in this very condensed format, uh, but I really enjoy seeing our division leadership get to talk about the initiatives that they are focused on for the upcoming budget process during our joint finance committee hearings because they are the ones presenting their division um, initiatives, their budget, and representing all the work that the staff do within those divisions that's so important to making sure that DHSS works really well every day. And how does your agency work with, um, obviously, federal funding is a big component, too. How does that kind of work with how you plan the state budget? And I know some things sometimes might be in flux. How do you kind of work with all of that? I I think that's one of the um, interesting areas, especially around Medicaid, because it is more than half of our budget. And we're always trying to figure out, are there going to be changes to the way the federal government approaches Medicaid, whether the the match rate changes, whether there's some regulation that we need to make up for. Um, And so we're constantly constantly trying to pay attention both at the national level and then at the state level. Um, ideally, we're always 
finding ways to leverage federal dollars whenever we have a state opportunity to put state dollars in and then get additional dollars from federal drawdown. That is ideal. Uh, But there are some programs that we are committed to that don't have that opportunity for federal match. And so we're just trying to go through it in an iterative process. But Medicaid is probably one of the most important areas where we really leverage as much Medicaid dollars as we can because there is federal match dollars to bring down and enhance our work. I think it's very important that we hear from the public. I mean, it's one of the the opportunities for us to hear openly where we think we're going in the right direction, where we could steer differently, and even sometimes gives us a head up as today's hearing showed, not only for this fiscal year planning, but future fiscal years. Um, So I enjoy the opportunity to hear formally uh, and also in ongoing conversations that we have or town halls or other meetings and formats around how the public engages with DHSS and where we can improve. So for fiscal year 2021, we're requesting $1.2 billion in general fund dollars and $144 million in appropriated special fund authority. And I, th- I think what's really important as part of that is that $27.1 million is door openers. Those are things that we're already committed to that have growth because the population is expected to grow and we know we, are, um, we have entitlement programs where we really keep track. Uh, we also were really cautious with this 1% discretionary request of $12.3 million, which sounds like a lot, but again, across all of these divisions goes very fast. And so we wanted to make sure we were focused on areas that uh, would allow us to grow and keep pace with new technology, with behavioral health needs, with how we run the department, looking for efficiency and accountability wherever we can. What do you think is um, some of the biggest challenges with creating and managing a budget this large? Well, you know, in in business school, they teach you that if you can manage a small budget um, with sound principles, you can manage a large budget. And I think that's how we approach it. It it does roll up to a higher level of decision making where you're setting priorities, not about like which paper clips to buy, but you're trying to figure out whether we need more efficient ways to manage our paper flow and and sign off. Um, So those are the things that I spend a lot of time on with our division of management services, trying to find areas of additional efficiency, accountability, how we can save a, a dollar so that we can actually put it back into the general fund, look for additional ways to leverage Medicaid, find federal grants or other opportunities. We don't get to highlight those um, new areas as much when we're applying for new awards from the federal government because they don't necessarily hit general fund, but those are also significant budget um, implications where we're really proud of some of the resources that have come into the state uh, through the the state uh, staff efforts to just apply for new funds. We we really focus on where we can leverage, and I think... um, Particularly right now, because we are in a positive revenue uh, cycle, it's reassuring that we have not been asked to make significant programmatic or or staffing decisions. Uh, What we do want to do is continue to make up for loss that happened during the Great Recession, where we really were in a situation where we were asked to find not necessarily filled positions, but positions that could be eliminated or programs that we had to cut back on. Um, I remember the, the first year I was in this role, we, we really were in a position where we had staff create 
lists that were the most amount of pain to the programs and services to the least. And trying to prioritize in that way is just a completely different scenario from where we are now, where we actually have a discretionary increase in our budget request. Um, How many residents would you say your agency touches in terms of services and programs, things like that? I mean, in some ways, we touch every Delawarean, every Delawarean who's born, who um, needs services in some way. We we look at their facilities, their healthcare needs, and um, and we provide a very important service, whether people know it or not. And um, we're kind of happy to be behind the curtain and and make uh, things work for people who are trying to navigate healthcare and services. But I think the people who know us most intimately are those who really do rely on us uh, to stay in their homes, to stay in their communities, to have uh, caregivers provide help for them every day. And, um, and, and often those are the ones who we want to hear from the most so that they can guide us on how to improve. Uh, the governor's team is fantastic to work with. Uh, you know, I'm very honored to be part of Governor Carney's uh, team and feel like it is a team. And we rely on each other. We're able to have open dialogue. Same same issue. You know, they don't necessarily have the full day-to-day details uh, at their fingertips, and I don't expect them to. And so it's just an ongoing dialogue. And sometimes we do have to um, spend more time on a particular crisis that we're trying to manage and figure out and get a guidance and direction on where we should go, but um, but I found a lot of support and encouragement where we really needed it, and and open dialogue back and forth whether they're hearing things or we're hearing things that we need to address and and deal with. Yeah, I am very fortunate. I still see patients a teeny bit, um, and it's generally in a um, underserved clinic, and I would say that. People who are coming for healthcare often are navigating other issues around housing and transportation. And I remember seeing a family, a mom, who was trying to figure out how to make sure her young child, who was a Medicaid um, eligible infant, uh, get the needed special formula that, that he needed. And just hearing her talk about how um, some of our programs have come to help her and how she finally agreed to have a home visiting nurse come into her home and guide her on other programs she was eligible for, on how to navigate the WIC program, on why it's important to show up for another appointment uh, to get into one of our programs was was really meaningful. And, and you know, she was worried about Um, some other issues with other kids in her family that she also, because of the baby, was able to figure out that she was eligible for other services for her kids who she was worried may uh, have needed additional support at home um, and in school. And so, I, you know, I think we just make a big difference in people's lives in very real ways that otherwise would not happen if we weren't here. And, um, And it really is up to those who are interacting at the person-to-person level um, in in really important ways and and making sure that we're supporting those uh, direct contact um, encounters is so important because that's where people really are asking for help at the the moment of crisis and, and we have to be ready to help them. You know, I think the work that we're doing right now in substance abuse and mental health reminds us that there are so many families impacted by the opioid epidemic right now. Um, We know that getting naloxone into the hands of people can actually save lives. We lost over 400 people to overdose deaths, and we're trying to 
make sure that people have free naloxone in their hands. And every one of those kit costs something like $100 um, at bulk rate prices. But the more we can buy to make sure that people who are impacted by addiction right now, the, the more lives we can save. So we're trying to figure out how to address those issues. But $100 compared to a one point whatever million, billion dollar um, request is a, is a big difference. And we're, we are at that level, right? Trying to figure out how you make the dollar stretch. And, and if we can buy additional naloxone, we think it'll matter. If we can buy additional clean syringes for people who are using drugs and keep them away from HIV and hepatitis C and other kinds of infections, that actually matters. And they're not that expensive to purchase, but we really do have to have the systems and the people in the right places in our ne most needed communities to make sure they're getting uh, resources out. And, and we know that we're getting people who will call us, who say, my son, daughter, neighbor is affected uh, by the drug epidemic right now. What do I do? Where do I go? And we have to have people who can answer the phones and guide people through where treatment options are available. Mike Jackson has been around Delaware's budget process for years and is now the director of the Office of Management and Budget. It's his job to take requests from agency leaders like Dr. Odom Walker and put them in the proposed budget every year. So Mike Jackson, I am the uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, and the Office of Management and Budget, outside of working with the governor as well as the legislature uh, in putting together the state's financial plan, we also have a, a variety of other responsibilities that includes managing um, 87 buildings uh, throughout the state, including construction and renovations, as well as uh, being responsible for approximately a little over 115 leases statewide for some of our lease property. We also have the Office of Pensions uh, that is underneath of us. We also have government support services, which is our fleet, contracting, our payroll system, which is quite frankly is one of the most important things that we do is making sure everyone gets paid every two weeks. Uh, and we also have a variety of functions uh, within those groups as well. So we, we definitely have a, uh, a, a wide breadth of uh, operations. So the, the budget process is a process that really is 12 months. Uh, it, it is not a process that starts uh, you know, where there's a beginning and an end. So for example, just to clarify that, when we started planning for fiscal year 2021, uh, it started actually back in the springtime. So we not only have to work towards uh, finalizing a budget with the General Assembly after the governor introduces a budget in January, we also start working on the upcoming fiscal plan. Uh, it really kicks off uh, in July uh, with getting everything organized and, and getting the appropriate meetings in place, our public hearing schedule, time on the governor's calendar, and being able to come up with an overall strategy for how we want to have agencies request funds and what parameters we want them to work within, what we think is reasonable. Uh, and then once September starts, we're really in full swing. Uh, DFAC, which is the Revenue Estimating Committee, will provide a five-year forecast of revenue. We will take that and begin to meet with agencies throughout the state in preparation for them submitting their their uh, their budget requests, which come in in October. Traditionally, they're October 15th, uh, give or take a day or two, depending on when October 15th lands. And then we'll spend the entire month of November having public hearings, which just finished up 
last week uh, with agencies throughout the state. And then we, we are in full mode, quite frankly, right now uh, in conversations with the governor in looking for uh, putting together a plan. So I, I think we have a, a, a varied role. Uh, one is we are not only responsible for putting a budget together, we are also responsible for managing a budget. And that is a not talked about very much, but it is also a very important process. The General Assembly sets a level of appropriation uh, by constitution. They are the ones that, that have that authority, and our job is to manage expenditures statewide within that level of appropriation. So that is one significant role that we have, and we actually report back uh, through DFAC on where expenditures are uh, compared to budget, and we provide an estimate six times a year uh, on that. The other piece that we're significantly involved in is that the budget is not all just about numbers. It is about policy. So we work very, very closely with the governor's office uh, as well as the governor, obviously, on the governor's policy agenda and how to set priorities within the budget to accomplish that pri policy agenda. So it's really a statement of priorities versus just a statement of numbers. And it, it has the, the budget has a significant influence over not just the governor's policy agenda, but the policy you know agenda for the state as a whole, including members of the General Assembly. And um, so we are really the, the, the main broker in that process. We try to uh, work with everyone across the state to make sure that uh, they're able to operate from one year to the next, but also are able to continue to do good things throughout the state by having the appropriate level of resources that is in support of the governor's uh, policy agenda. Definitely. And how do you balance all of those different needs from the agencies, you know, constituents, pet projects, anything so, there? So uh, it, it is, um, it's not easy. There's no science to it. I think it is more about interpersonal skills and relationships of being able to be upfront, uh, whether it is a cabinet secretary, whether it is a policy uh, staffer from the governor's office, whether it is a, uh, a, a legislator, and uh, even the governor himself is being straightforward and sharing really what the facts are uh, and being able to comfortably say no, uh, that, that something just isn't going to work out this year because of a particular reason or because there are particular demands on the budget. I mean, there are things that we have to do in the budget every year, particularly when our enrollment and our schools grows and the student population shifts. You know, we, we have to fund those changes. Um, and there are other things that we have to fund. So they do eat up resources. And our job is to be able to, one, make sure that we're accomplishing the governor's priorities and doing it in a financially sustainable way. Uh, and two, making sure that uh, all of my colleagues within the cabinet have the resources necessary to uh, operate their budget and operate their agencies. And then three, be respectful of the members of the General Assembly who also have ideas and initiatives that they want to put forth. And I think, you know, taking that type of prioritized approach from our standpoint in the executive branch um, and tying it to just relationships, uh, it's, it's, I would say that's our best approach of being able to balance all of the competing interests. You touched on something. I just wanted to ask, uh, can you just, for everybody listening that might not understand the term, can you 
explain at a ground floor level what a door opener is? Sure. Well, it's a, it's a term that's been around for a long time. And it's a term where there is no single one definition for it because it, it, it can change. Uh, I, I think the best way to explain it is that it is a resource need that an agency needs in order to operate in the upcoming fiscal year. So, for example, we are about to complete a new Troop 7 in Lewis in Sussex County. It is a building that's larger in structure and status than the existing Troop 7, and it's going to require more energy costs, greater level of operating costs. It's going to require staffing to be able to maintain it. So once it opens, there are resources that need to be in the budget to make sure that it's able to open its doors and operate. So it's it's kind of something that's a new asset that is uh, going to be on our books that we have to have money for in order for it to run efficiently. The second, I would say most popular example, I touched on it before, is our schools. So we always have new kids that come into the state. We also have uh, kids that are enrolled in our schools that have differing needs, uh, whether they're the needs-based population or whether they're children of low income or children of uh, poverty. You know, those students, because we have funding formulas, uh, it's a mathematical equation that generates, you know, you have so much enrollment, this is how it's categorized, and this is the level of resources that are needed in order to hire teachers to educate students throughout our schools based on our formula. So that would be another example of a door opener. I would say the last one is, you know, when we have construction projects, we sell bonds to finance those construction projects. Those bonds require new debt service. So we have to be able to have debt service, new debt service requirements in our budget to be able to pay um, our bonds that's facilitating a construction program. So our operating budget is is what is used to fund the day-to-day operations of our uh, of our state. Uh, everything from education to the Department of Health and Social Services to our correctional system to our judicial system uh, and our juvenile justice system and then just a variety of park operations. Our capital budget really is used to be able to maintain our buildings, you know, whether a building needs new windows, new drywall, needs doors replaced, you know, we have something in there called uh, minor capital improvement. It is also used to be able to fund new construction, whether it's in our schools or our state facilities or our higher education institutions. Uh, There are tools in our capital budget for economic development, for job creation. Uh, such as the Delaware Strategic Fund, which is uh, a a resource to be able to provide incentives for businesses to locate in Delaware. And then there's a variety of uh, environmental programs that are in place that, uh, whether it's uh, drinking water infrastructure, clean water infrastructure, uh, protecting uh, farmland or protecting open space, you know, they're all items uh, that are part of our capital budget. Uh, that protect our environment. Transportation itself is also funded through, uh, it has a general operations, but it also has uh, road construction and maintenance, uh, bridge construction and maintenance, and a variety of facility uh, improvements for our maintenance yards and our transit facilities. So that all exists uh, also within our operating and our capital budget. It is funded though, largely uh, through uh, transportation fees. So your motor vehicle fees, tolls, um, 
those are items that, you know, uh, bus tickets and things like that are what help fund our transportation infrastructure and operations. So how do you plan um, or try to plan and budget for any emergencies that might pop up? So that's a good question. And the, the one, um, uh, I would say, accomplishment that really led with the governor when the governor first took office was to be able to begin to think long term about the budget and be in, begin to plan in a way of not budgeting entirely up to using all the resources that we can use as a state and being able to take a look at what we would call extraordinary revenue, maybe revenue that's one time in nature that we shouldn't use for our general operations, um, and being able to keep budget growth at a level that's manageable into the future. So that's, there's a couple things that are involved in that. One, internally, we, we use a multi-year planning model. So we have a pretty good understanding of what we see as coming, um, that are going to be impacts in the future on the budget, things that we want to be able to plan for. Uh, two, uh, DFAC, which is an extraordinary group of uh, a cross-representation of um, economic officials throughout the state, whether it's state officials, legislators, banking officials, those in the financial industry, higher education, that do a multi-year forecast once a, uh, once a year. And we use that to kind of compare against what we see as our planning model, our four-year planning model, to be able to give the best advice to the governor, but also uh, the General Assembly once the governor submits uh, the recommended budget. And one accomplishment that we've been able to do to plan for emergencies is establish what's called the Budget Stabilization Fund, so we have a, uh, a rainy day fund, which is 5% of our revenue that there needs to be an extraordinary unplanned circumstance in order to use it. We've never used it. Uh, we also cannot budget 100% of our revenue. We can only spend 98% of our revenue. So we always hold some money back um, in case it is it, to be able to deal with fluctuations of revenue. But most importantly, the budget stabilization fund, which the governor led and, and the General Assembly support it is kind of like a usable savings account. Uh, we haven't spent all the money that uh, we've uh, could by law. We've actually spent less than 98% of revenue, and we've taken that difference and put it in this usable savings account that can be used for an emergency by an act of the General Assembly. So we, we, we use a multi-year planning model. We also now have what would be called a usable savings account for emergencies. Can you kind of explain, um, you know, what we classify as like an emergency or a kind of crisis situation? So um, that's a good question. I was, I was here uh, in this job in an acting capacity at the close of Governor Minner's administration um, and the beginning of Governor Markell's administration. And I was in an acting position at the beginning of the Great Recession when uh, we had an extraordinary session of, uh, uh, of DFAC, which is the Economic uh, and Financial Advisory Council, to do a revised revenue estimate. They had met in September. They met again in November by call of the chair to reduce our revenue estimate by close to $300 million for the year in which we were operating and then the same amount, uh, or if not a little bit more, for the, for the following year. So when you set a budget and you set it on a revenue level that you are dependent upon, and it changes that significant, significantly given the national economy that's reverberating in the state, 
I would call that an emergency. Um, that is a that was a process in which we had to go through and reduce expenditures by two hundred and fifty million dollars just to be able to get through the fiscal year. That was around ten percent of the budget. That's a that's an extraordinary circumstance in which one in which it is difficult just to say we need to have X amount of money in our budget, um, but to have to go through and be able to reduce expenses and continue to fund the things that we have to fund, like our schools, uh, it created a uh, an enormous challenge. I think not just for uh, us as a department, but all of our colleagues throughout the state. How do you kind of work through making some of those hard choices? You know, you mentioned having those tough conversations, honest conversations mm-hmm. with people about it. So it comes down to priorities and making sure that we're fulfilling the obligations that we have to fill, meaning, you know, we have to pay our debt service obligations. We have to fund teachers that are already in our schools to make sure our kids are educated. And then it comes down to working with our colleagues and saying, what can you live without this year that you're not required to do? Um, and being able to come up with the options to prepare for the governor to consider, uh, and then being able to work with the General Assembly on uh, the difficult choices that they will have to make as well. In the end, um, we have to have a budget by law, by constitution, by June 30th of every year. Uh, we did run into a little bit of a, of a challenge a couple of years ago, but we're able to work through that. Uh, so I think being able to um, be clear, be honest, uh, be upfront with regard to what the options are, and then following through on what you what you say is always the most helpful part on the in the process itself. So, can a private citizen influence the budget process? Yeah, yeah. There, there's um, multiple ways I think for a private citizen to do so. One is, and we just got we just finished them, which is our public hearings uh, as part of putting together the governor's proposed budget. Our real purpose of having those hearings uh, is um, to be able to afford the public the opportunity to comment on what not just the cabinet, what the judiciary, what our higher education institutions, and what a variety of other non-cabinet agencies are asking for to be considered as part of the governor's proposed financial plan. So that is that is one avenue as well. The other avenue is the Joint Finance Committee as well as the Bond Bill Committee. They hold public hearings uh, after the governor submits uh, his or her budget, and they also have an opportunity to be able to come to those hearings and offer public comment as a reaction to what the governor submitted uh, for the General Assembly to consider. So they're really the two uh, areas where I think any private citizen can influence the process. But Delaware being a small state, clearly there are a lot of other avenues just in working with their senators and their representatives to be able to uh, provide feedback and also being a small state. Um, I think a lot of our cabinet is also accessible. So uh, there are ap- opportunities in just one-on-one conversations as well. I have a great deal of respect for the, the, the governor on being able to lay out a policy and fiscal agenda for the state and providing leadership. I have a great deal of respect for the General Assembly and what the institution stands for and the level of caring that, um, whether it's a senator or representative, and what they bring to the table to improve the state, particularly those who um, sit on our appropriation committees, which is not easy because it's it's not something that they work in day to day. And uh, to be able to work through a fiscal plan and a budget 
uh, with an administration requires a certain degree of trust, but it also requires a certain level of decision-making from them when they're getting a significant level of feedback from advocates and others on what they think of the governor's proposed budget. So the best, I would say, example that can that I can share that relates to that is, and I'll go back to the Great Recession, uh, when Governor Markell submitted a budget reset, uh, which included a pay cut. And to watch that process and be part of that process play out, which was very difficult for everyone, um, in order to bring the state back into a certain level of financial stability at that time was just an extraordinary process because the level of um, advocacy against the pay cut was very strong, but the leadership, I think, that was uh, exerted by not just Governor Markell at that time, but also legislative leadership and the leadership on our appropriation committees, it was pretty extraordinary to see that come together. Um, and I think we still see that today, right? And Governor Carney of being able to lay out, you know, when uh, he first took office in the, in the cabinet of a $400 million problem of a budget reset and being able to set us on a path uh, of, at this point, stability. So I'll probably keep the funny stories to myself um, and just the reactions, but I think it is more about just the leadership that you see in times of crisis across the administrations and, and the General Assembly that just, I think, serves the state so well. When the budget signed, our team uh, in the Office of Management and Budget, particularly the Budget Development Group, are uh, hard at work the day after, as well as with our Department of Finance, of loading the budget into the accounting system for everything to work. So we basically have to shut everything down uh, and take everything that we've spent from the prior year uh, kind of put it in our books and say, this is what we spent, and then we have to load everything back up. So a couple years ago, when we did not have a budget that was adopted on June 30th, and we were all in a holding pattern, we all remember coming back on a Sunday, which was just a lot of fun to do on that particular day in July 3rd, uh, we finally passed the budget. You know, we reached a, a, um, a place of... Uh, uh, I would say consensus, and it got adopted. And I think everyone left exhausted. And it was still in the middle of the night, right, when it finally officially completely got done. And I left this building, and I, we work in the Hazlitt Armory, which is catty corner to here. And every light on the third floor in the Hazlitt Armory was on at 3 o'clock in the morning, taking the budget that was just adopted in order to get it in the accounting system because we were already late in adopting it, so we weren't. So we were making sure that we were able to pay our vendors on time. Employees were able to get paid. Um, and when I say walking across the street, looking at every uh, light on the third floor of the Hazlitt Armory being on, and staying there to make that work, we also have a place. Uh, our first system, which is our payroll system, which is over at Enterprise Business Park, they were there as well. So when it's done, yeah, it's done, right? It's signed, but our work, uh, it's, it's just as intense for a couple of days to make sure that we're actually able to implement the budget and employees are able to get paid. While the executive branch starts the budget process, the General Assembly writes the actual code and allocates the money. Representative Quinn Johnson is co-chair of the powerful Joint Finance Committee, which takes the lead on this process. 
Uh, I'm State Representative Quinn Johnson. Uh, I represent the 8th District, which is located in the uh, Newcastle County, uh, Middletown area is what I represent, uh, pretty much the incorporated area of Middletown and some of the rural areas around that. I am now the uh, House Chair of the uh, uh, JFC Joint Finance Committee, uh, entering in my second year of that, and then prior to that was the capital budget chair for six years uh, there in that role. Well, one of the aspects of this role is that I'm also on our what's called DFAT committee, our actual committee that's established um, to give the governor what our revenue projections are going to be, as well as they monitor throughout the course of the year when we're not in session, what our expenditures have been, and making sure that they're balancing out and, and what is left. So those uh, that DFAT committee has already been meeting. In fact, we actually just had a meeting yesterday um, that gives the governor his final figures uh, to work up his proposed uh, budget that he has, of course, been working on. Um, they've been having on the um, executive side their department hearings, uh, which have been open to the public to come in and to voice. It's where they come in and talk about their priorities and what they're trying to accomplish with the means that they have available. The governor then takes that information uh, puts it into his proposal, which we'll then be getting actually in the second week, I believe, of January, uh, when he'll be unveiling to him what his proposal is. Um, we then take that and go through an extensive process for the next six months of, again, more hearings, more analyzation, uh, more listening to the public, and then determining what the priorities are. Well, the legislative branch is actually the branch that is in charge of the funds. Um, and so just as it states, it is the governor's proposal, but it's ultimately our responsibility. And uh, in not only my opinion, but it, it is really the primary role of the state legislature is, to, is the budget. Um, certainly all the other laws that come out of here are certainly important. But if we don't have a budget, then none of those laws can exist and or, or operate. So that's our number one mandate. Um, and so we do take what um, the governors uh, recommend, and I say governors because throughout you know, our history of the state, that is what it is, it's a proposal um, uh, at heart, uh, but we also look at the demands and ultimately do make up our own decisions. So you'll see that at the end, there are differences in what he has proposed and then of course what the final budget uh, does look like. And we take that um, through our own hearings that we have to have the public come in voice their concerns about what the governor has proposed and also what they would like to see occur. How difficult is it to manage those, you know, requests versus, you know, when you hear testimony from the public, you know, other legislators, how do you kind of manage all of those competing interests? Well, that's a challenging job because I've been in this um, role as a state representative for 12 years and actually came in when we were the worst of the worst of economies and budgets um, to now where we're at a point where we actually do have uh, funds. Uh, the issue and problem is that the state will never be short of issues to deal with. We will always have problems that are brought to us to try to help and, and work out. The problem is, is that there's never enough money. It's not an endless checkbook to solve all these problems. And so there has to be, because we are constitutionally required to have a balanced budget, um, but there has to be a balance not only of the funds but of the priorities to say what what can we attack and tackle now, what will give us the best um, outcomes, um, and how can we move forward with that. So it is challenging because even in a time when we have uh, what people feel are funds, we still have to say no. Um, and that's even more challenging when you're saying no uh, because nobody likes to say that word no, uh, but it is necessary for us to continue forward. Well, one of the biggest um, 
primary roles that we have for state funding is actually our education system. That actually takes up uh, our public education as over a third of our actual uh, budget. So that's that's huge. Um, and balancing those outcomes has certainly been a hot topic between not just the K to 12 uh, period, but also looking at the education from birth to five, as well as um, the opportunities that we have available for individuals that wish to go on and get either vocational training or um, a college degree. Um, so the, the topics that we discuss do span from birth to 21. Um, we have early education initiatives that we've been working on for over a decade to improve those outcomes. Uh, last year, the governor did have a, a significant proposal that dealt with um, low-performing schools as well as low-income uh, children opportunities um, and then also uh, English language learners to try to give them uh, opportunities that are, are different. And that's one point that I want to make sure that everybody um, understands that there is, that when we talk about the word fair, what is fair? That's obviously very subjective, but ultimately people have to understand that there are going to be some districts that may receive more funding to be able to get the children in that district um, to the same level of opportunity that uh, children in another district have. And the reason it's more funding uh, is not because we like them better, it's because they have some obstacles to overcome that the other children just don't have. And so in my view, it is fair to provide that as long as we're providing that op same opportunity and that, that's the key. So the education discussions are significant. We also have uh, large expenses through healthcare, uh, healthcare costs, not just for our own employees and, and retirees, but also for um, the Medicare, Medicaid populations um, that we handle, and we're trying to tackle those expenses. Um, but really, to me, the mandate of our state is to help the vulnerable populations um, who are having difficulties to be able to have literally opportunities to be able to move to the next and, and not just, it's a helping hand is what it is. And that's what we need to be focusing on to help them out. Um, other things that we deal with are certainly an environment, clean water, um, those types of very important aspects. So you'll see within the budgetary process, investments in our environment, in, in, our, in our spaces, um, preserving our ag land so that we have uh, not only space, but food for the future as the population grows. Um, so there's a, it's a significant amount of conversations that do go forth. Absolutely, because ultimately when, um, especially when there's criticism of what funds have been spent for, it's usually because that individual that may be uh, criticizing does not have a personal experience or knowledge of the other individuals who, in fact, it is actually helping. Um, and that is a very key point. There are people behind these numbers, um, and that's what it's all about, trying to help those individuals whatever it is, whether it's the seniors that need additional support, we have low-income families that for whatever reason are in that situation at the moment, but the goal is to help them get out of that situation. It's not a goal to keep them there, it's to get them out and give them job opportunities, help them uh, get training uh, so they can get different jobs that may not be working uh, for them at this point in time. Uh, affordable housing uh, is also a, a key issue because of the expense, trying to make sure that individuals have a nice, clean, safe place to live. 
um, as well as uh, as we have discussed. Um, we've got um, also crime issues that we've dealt with. The, the opioid epidemic um, affects every um, walk of life in the state of Delaware. And so it's something that we're not responsible for. We didn't create it, but we're having to respond to it. Um, and, and the citizens demand that we do. Sure. And, and from a perspective, yes, because when I first started uh, the first four years, I was chair of Natural Resources Committee. That was a committee that, of course, um, which all committees do have some sort of aspect of the budget because there's uh, DENREC and things of that sort that are part of that um, legislation that comes out of natural resources. So laws were being passed through that that were dependent upon the budget, you know, clean water, um, providing services to the parks, um, that type of thing. And so once getting onto the budget committee, then I was able to realize just how challenging it is to make everything match up, how to balance everything, to be able to meet the needs of those requests because every legislator, both House member and Senate member, does come with some sort of request, not just for the district, but for the entire state. Um, and uh, while we wish that all uh, individuals would come with the exact same request, they don't. Uh, and so oftentimes, once you add up the amount of requests, that's more than what we have. So then the challenge then does become in how do we end up balancing this budget? And, and that, in addition to the fact that you're also dealing with the economic swings, such as how much revenue do we have, we, we're not necessarily able to affect, say, a downturn in the economy that then affects the amount of revenue, but that doesn't stop the amount of requests. If anything, when we do have a downturn in economy, actually more requests come in because now people are more dependent upon the help of the state. And so it just becomes that much more challenging. In a downturn economy, usually it means that businesses have a slowdown in their demands of what they have. For the state, it's just the opposite. They go up for us, while at the same time revenue is going down. So living through that, living through those downturns, working towards the balanced budget definitely gave me greater respect for the amount of time and energy that goes into those individuals that are on these money committees um, and now even on the JFC chair, the amount of time that goes into the conversations of how we're going to make it all work once the end of the June comes. It's, it's a moving target as we go through the process because ultimately what we do have is that we will have, since it's a six-month process, uh, we will start right off getting the governor's proposal. Then we have our own hearings in the month of February uh, where people, of course, come in based off of what the governor recommended. But then we have several more of the defect meetings that I previously mentioned where we're then looking at the economy, we're looking at the revenues, determining did it go up, did it go down? Um, and of course, at that point in time, um, it's where then we've had that it's not balanced out, meaning that we've had revenues go down, but the demands are still the same. So as I'm sitting there with my peers on the, the Joint Finance Committee, we're in essence having to take all the other legislators come in and say, we have this issue in the district, we have this issue here, we have that. Um, can you help us out uh, with these funds? It's a matter of 
just trying to keep it balanced. It, it, I, I sometimes feel like I'm uh, sitting there, the little Dutch boy that has his finger in the hole of a dike and trying to keep the, the, it from leaking, that that's what it's like at times, just keeping everything together, uh, hoping that nothing help gets it unraveled. Because by the time we get to June, there's been a multitude of conversations, a multitude of balancing out the figures uh, and trying to make everything work. And uh, there have definitely been times where we've thought we had it, and then we have to turn right back around. Um, unfortunate times where when we didn't have enough money in trying to balance the budget um, to find that uh, uh, some method of, of proposals that were done didn't pass. And so that meant going down at the middle of the night, late night, trying to rework things um, to make them uh, to make them balance uh, because it is a requirement. We have to. Unlike the federal government, we don't print money in Delaware. Uh, and so we, we do have to make it all at the end of the day come out equal. Well, the main thing that I always tell everybody is that advocacy is the most important thing and that ultimately when you sit there and say sometimes don't feel like the advocacy has worked, don't give up um, because it is a complex process that everybody has to understand um, and that they're not alone in their advocacy. So there's tons of demands as I've tried to reiterate to everybody, there will never be a shortage of problems that the state will handle, but there will be a shortage of resources that we have available. And the same thing that the public needs to, to determine is if the state is not doing something that they wish, uh, it's not about just spending the money because we don't have the money. We have to discuss where does that money come from uh, and what is a fair way to, if the public decides we want more money, how do we raise that as a, as a state? We don't have a sales tax. Uh, we have very, very low property tax. Um, we have a, right now, a fairly decent uh, personal income tax um, because everybody is working, unemployment extremely low, and that has definitely helped out. Um, but we have some things on the horizon that are going to be challenging and unfortunately probably going to put us right back into the years of deficit. So I just urge everyone to advocate for their causes, make sure, because this is a very public process. There isn't anything that happens behind closed doors without public input. Uh, and so for them to stay diligent, but understand that it is up to them, the public, to tell us, the legislature, that yes, it's time to raise revenue and here's our suggestion on how to do it. Because we can't just have, we want everything, but we don't want to raise any revenue because it just doesn't work that way. There just isn't enough right now. Um, and so I just want the public to know that this is really in their hands. We serve them, we are their representatives, uh, and uh, certainly be involved. That's the most important thing, vote as well as come down to Legislative Hall or send emails or phone calls uh, because we all do get them and do listen to what they say. Whip Count is brought to you by the Delaware House Democratic Caucus. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash dehousedems, on Twitter at dehousedems, and on Instagram also at dehousedems. More episodes are coming, so make sure you're subscribed.